happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 205 for the 20th of January, 2021. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in the fabulous University of Montana campus here in lovely Missoula, Montana. And joining me as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well, um, and I'm <clears throat> thrilled that we had a a peaceful and calm and historic day to commemorate. And it's good to be here. I appreciate anybody who's who's being here. I think I think my dad is going to be multitasking between inauguration festivities and the EdTech Situation Room. So. Well, I mean, obviously, we can provide commentary on the computer side of all this because, you know. Of course, of course. (laughs) Even though I'm wearing my purple tonight, uh, I am in Oklahoma City, where I am the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School, teaching fifth and sixth grade media literacy and helping coach our teachers with technology integration in our continuing pandemic. Looking forward to our vaccine date of February 12th, which was announced and Will be a good thing, I think. So, what are we going to do here, Doctor Neifer? I like your background tonight. Thank you very much. Yep, celebrating democracy today. Live, live dog. So, Uh, there's a dog sitting right outside my door. As a matter of fact, well, we're not going to talk about our dogs or the transition to power. We are going to talk about technology news and kind of shoot it through an education prism. And uh, especially now that we're starting to see the other side of the pandemic and obviously vaccination is starting to become a hot topic um, and more people will be leaving remote learning and going back to part time or full time face to face school. There's a lot of interesting things in the technology news. Uh, we will talk about some links tonight. As usual, we have way more than we possibly have time to cover. So if you're wondering what else might have been on our mind this week, you can always go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links and get to our like 300 page document uh, full of all the links we've considered since episode number one, four years ago of the EdTech Situation Room. Tonight, we are covering uh, connectivity, a very interesting story today that I'm sure both Wes and I uh, will have some ranting to do about information literacy, Microsoft. Microsoft security and privacy, the tech correction in social media, probably our biggest topic every week and has been for some time. Some interesting hardware news, some mobile news. And of course, at the end of our show tonight, we will share our geeks of the week. Wes, as our esteemed co-host tonight, where should we start? Well, we can just kind of start maybe at the top. I know we're going to probably do a lot of tech correction stuff, but uh, let's start off with uh, these connectivity articles. Um, I'm glad you, I actually was going to put that one in and hey, Jason's already done it. So Ars Technica today, uh, Ajit Pai, our departing FCC chair, who I for one am not sad to see leave, um, has said that, you know, really nothing's changed with the internet in five years and uh, a three meg upload and 20 meg download, it's all you need. You don't need anything else residentially in, in the country. And of course, I'm stating that in a bit of a crass way, but that is what he wrote in a report to the Congress. And according to that article, uh, by keeping the quote unquote high speed threshold at a three meg upload, a 20 meg download, it makes it easier for him, who was, of course, an employee of some of our 
service providers uh, prior to stepping into government service <clears throat> makes it easier for him to give them a passing grade for the digital divide. But we've certainly had all kinds of gaping holes uh, more visible through the pandemic and remote learning and folks working from home and everything that, that has been happening. So I certainly don't think a three meg upload is is adequate. I mean, it's better than a dial up modem, uh, but that isn't where we should be today in, in 2021. Um, your thoughts, Dr. Neifer? Well, uh, there's so many layers to how this story kind of, kind of, kind of torques me off in part because I feel like we've been, uh, kind of kidding ourselves that we, we, it's seemingly pouring a lot of money into rural broadband access in the United States. And yet here we are, um, in 2021 and in the most recent numbers available, nearly one in 10 uh, uh, rural residents do not even have uh, a 10 megabit down, one megabit up. And, and that is shocking to me. Like, obviously I am a little outraged by the notion that three megabits up is, is, is enough in 2021, especially since one thing that's happened as an obvious byproduct of the COVID-19 pandemic is that video conferencing has gone dramatically mainstream. And I think it's going to be a part of our future. I mean, I, I get that we don't want to have, you know, everything this way, but I've noticed so many great trends of participatory democracy of allowing people to meet over great distances or being able to have people be interactive with one another in, in a video conferencing way without having to leave their, their home or office or, or, or the safety of their home, if that's what they need, that I think it's going to play a really a huge role in, in the way we interact in the future, even though I would totally agree that Zoom fatigue is real and we're plain tired of being on online meetings. But the bottom line is that if that's true, then three megabits up is a sad joke of, of, of an upload speed. Um, the other thing I would also note here, too, is that I, I feel like when we get these kind of rosy pictures of broadband speed and broadband availability is that it also denies the fact that a lot of, of, of areas that don't have a lot of competition have terrible caveats to their bandwidth. For example, uh, my in-laws who live a 25 minute drive from the state capital in, in, in North central Montana. Um, they, they admittedly live in a relatively uh, uh, isolated area, but again, just 25 minutes from our state capital. And they until very recently had a DSL line that was supposed to be a uh, 10 down one up this uh, uh, mystery um, speed that, that is the base of, of the report that uh, the FCC, released uh, today, the bottom line is is that it was never 10 down and one up. It was more like less than one down and sometimes one up. And that's just not good enough. And in fact, that was being reported as critical access. And I'm sure that the provider, the DSL provider that was selling that terrible internet access to my in-laws was collecting a subsidy to be able to, to provide that. And the bottom line is, is that we have a lot of work to do here. And if the pandemic has done anything from a broadband standpoint, it's proven that it's really critical infrastructure and we should be spending uh, as much uh, a time and attention on providing access to every single person in the United States. Absolutely. Well, and as educators, we've had our, our sets of report cards and, you know, A through F ratings and things like that. Um, those are the kind of ratings that, you know, people do tend to understand. I think it's unfortunate that it appears that our outgoing FCC director is more interested in, in giving a good grade to the service providers than he is in really advancing 
the cause of, of connectivity and, and universal access, which is his charge. That's, that's the whole, it's one of the, the main, per, well, in the context of, of internet bandwidth, it's one of the, the main roles that the FCC plays as well as, as other groups. And this is a related aside. I don't have this in the show notes, but <clears throat> in the course of trying to make sense of and learn about what happened at the Capitol on January 6th and, you know, and some of the roles the technology played, but basically just trying to make sense as a citizen, what the heck happened and, and what are we going to do? Um, I discovered a new podcast, the Washington Post uh, Post Reports, and they have a fantastic, I actually discovered them through Radiolab because Radiolab had a slightly shortened version of a wonderful piece that they did. But but I listened to their uh, recap of the inauguration today, and they're sponsored by Huawei. And their t- tagline was all about, and Huawei wants to provide, you know, universal access for everyone, you know, on the Internet. And anyway, it was just a little bit weird. We've talked about Huawei, the Chinese um, hard, you know, phone manufacturer, um, networking company, technology company, huge competitor globally to um Lots of companies and one that the United States government has specifically targeted and, and attempted to lock out of the United States as well as other other countries. And so that was just kind of weird. <laughs> so, I mean, hey, highest bidder, I guess, you know, pay, pay for your ad. I'm, who else? Uh, the uh, Internet Research Agency. Maybe they're, well, they're going to start running ads soon. So there's another article there, too. Uh, but I think I might have actually put that one in. Um, this one was the, well, I guess, was that the same article? Oh, this was about data caps. Okay, this was a, this was January 19th. So it says, as AgitPi uh, departs FCC, three megabit downloads still fast enough for U.S. homes. <clears throat> he says in final report, admits defeat on, I think I, I, think I screwed that up because I think something, yeah, that shouldn't have been combined. I'll fix that, the title. As Pi exits FCC, Charter admits defeat on petition to impose data caps. We've talked uh, in the context of bandwidth um, and connectivity a little bit about data caps. Uh, Jason, I think, is experiencing some of that there in Montana. Um, we have had our provider, Cox Cable, um, log our utilization and officially have data caps, but it's only recently, really, I think since the pandemic, which is ironic that they've enforced those. And <clears throat> I've had to increase the monthly amount that we're paying to our, our service provider um, because the company charter is, was part of a acquisition of time. Uh, they purchased time Warner cable. They had a seven year condition. And one of those was you can't have data caps. Well, they petitioned to try to um, have that released two years early so they could start charging customers more, of course. And the uh, petition failed. And anyway, Pi was not able to get that passed through. So these are really important issues. And hey, folks need to make money. I was talking to my kids. We're, we're talking about conspiracy theories in, in media literacy class in sixth grade. And we've been talking about the moon landings and kids are doing their final projects now. And I was saying, you know, advertising is trying to manipulate you, right? I don't think all advertising is evil. And certainly making money is not a bad thing either, right? Our capitalist system, I'm I'm all for. But I am for reasonable regulation. I am for consumer protection. And I think in this area, we continue to see a lot of tension. And so to bring it back to the educational perspective, we need to be advocates in our communities, in our states for broadband, for connectivity, uh, whether it's your local ed tech organization, statewide ed tech organization, I should say, or, you know, other groups who are who is talking to lawmakers 
uh, in your state legislature and then also your elected federal representatives and senators about broadband connectivity. You know, I, I live in Oklahoma. We're a predominantly rural state with over 500 school, you know, school districts, most of which have less than, you know, 200 students. We're pretty rural and, and Montana is as well. So that kind of advocacy needs to, I think, be on the list of uh, topics that, that we're, you know, trying, trying to make sure that our representatives are hearing from. They may not be hearing from a lot of people about it. Uh, and, and if you're listening to the show, you are, <laughs> you are attuned to educational technology, most likely. And that, that needs to be part of what we are locally trying to do is promote increased access and reasonable regulation, I would say, that especially protects consumers and doesn't just champion corporate interests at the cost of consumers. Right. Absolutely. And I would also note in regards to the notion of of data caps, uh, it, it's not eminent in, in, in our cable provider, but I have been uh, keeping a close eye on um, how much data that, that I use. And to be clear, it is me and my wife. We, we are, are just the two of us. We do both work at home and we do spend a, a, a fairly large amount of time on video conferencing, although that's not nearly as bandwidth intensive as, as one might think, uh, it is. It, especially, uh, in the last few years that high quality signals have been really whittled away to much smaller bandwidth. But between the two of us, uh, over the last month, we've used 952 gigabytes down of, of, um, of bandwidth and that that's a significant amount, but we get all of our video over internet bandwidth. We don't get cable otherwise. Um, uh, it, you know, we've been stuck at home for some time. Uh, and in fact, uh, it, it would have been typical for us at the end of December to go on a trip, uh, outside of, of, of here. So we spent most of that time at home. In fact, didn't even spend time with our families over, uh, uh, the Christmas holidays. So obviously we used more than we would have otherwise, but I do think that, um, that, uh, uh, it's interesting that as more things move online, as more things connect online, as, as, as internet becomes more of a critical dial tone to almost everything we do, uh, there, there's, there's more threat that's going to cost us more money to be able to do that. And, um, I find that uh, a little troublesome, but I'm hoping the market, uh, helps create more opportunities for people to provide bandwidth in new and interesting ways. And another slight comment, we can then head head on to other topics. Um, I think we probably should still continue to explore cooperatives and other ways that just like, you know, electrification and the ways that the country got electrified, uh, it did rely on not only government um, regulation, discounts, orders, you know, laws, uh, but it also involved cooperatives and, you know, communities getting their basic utilities provided not just through a multinational conglomerate or multinational corporation that, you know, is obviously focused on their bottom line and, and, and the return on investment. But, you know, co the co-ops are, are focused on providing service. And we've had a big ethic of universal service for phone lines, for dial tone. Um, and that same ethic needs to be continued for the internet and there is just so much. And, and like we said, especially during the pandemic with education and schools that are either fully remote or these, you know, half, half online, half face to face, um, you know, the world of work uh, it's incumbent upon us to provide this equitably and to not simply let the market, you know, go, go as it may. 
Um, and, and to look at what's happening with respect to, to large companies and, and the ways in which monopolies work and oligopolies and all that kind of stuff. So I think that we perhaps are going to enter an era where we may have a bit more governmental support for those kinds of initiatives at a federal level. But time will tell. Yep, absolutely. Okay, where should we head to next? Well, why don't you choose? I mean, we can definitely jump into tech correction, but you want to do something else first before that? You've got a couple yeah, let's of do, topics. Let's do a little nerdiness first. Uh, a couple of interesting Microsoft updates. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Tech Radar uh, reports on January 19th that Microsoft continues its march towards open source. And I laugh so much when I read these headlines because 20 years ago, Microsoft was just... Uh, terrified that open source software would, would rule the day and get rid of any sort of profit, uh, motive for, for operating system manufacturers. Of course, open source is dominating Microsoft in, 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 in the internet, right? Because most of the internet runs on, on, on open source, uh, software, uh, uh, servers and infrastructure, but, uh, they are now continuing to preach this notion that we need to expand, um, uh, open source usage and also that, uh, uh, there's profit in, in open source is, is basically the bottom line for Microsoft. And I have to say that part of the reason why I think that they are, uh, really a refreshed company in, in 2021 is because they've embraced this notion that they can be on every platform and it doesn't diminish the experience, um, on Microsoft tools. And secondarily, that they don't have to be competitive of, of, of other architectures. They can indeed just kind of in, envelop them inside of, of, of their processes. And, um, I've been a bit of a Linux geek for, you know, almost 20 years now installed. Uh, uh, I, I install it every once in a while on a spare laptop for, for amusement. Once in a while, it'll become my primary computer for a little while just because I like, uh, I, I, I like the challenge of learning new stuff, but it is super interesting that Microsoft continues down that road of being very open source driven. And of course, the, the most stunning, uh, uh, evidence of that is in the last year they've adopted a browser framework that's built on top of open source Chromium, which is the same base as Google Chrome. So Wes, I know that you also in general are an advocate of, of, of of free software and free culture. Any thoughts about Microsoft's philosophical transition over time? Well, like you said, it's amazing how things change. Um, I think that we need to be doing a similar thing in school, right? Where are students in your schools being introduced and gaining familiarity with open source projects, you know, with GitHub? Um, our former computer science teacher uh, used GitHub for education, uh, basically kind of like an LMS for some of his classes that he taught. Uh, you know, I'm a big WordPress fan. I have lots of WordPress sites. Our EdTech SR site, you know is is running on WordPress. I have been amazed since I've, you know, started to use WordPress and got into all that. Um, the power, uh, we would say the extensibility, meaning just the, the many different ways <clears throat> that a tool like that can be utilized. And I think a, a working knowledge of, of Linux and the command line and that that's essential for a lot of computer science geekdom. And so hopefully students are being introduced to that you know, at your school. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. What does it take for some people to 
change their view. Uh, sometimes people do just wait for, you know, what is Microsoft saying? You know, and we, we think that, you know, they, they, they ruled the office landscape for years. And anyway, they just have a lot of authority with a lot of enterprise users. And oftentimes that means, you know, technology directors and tech departments and things like that too. So I think this is a great headline to share. And, you know, yeah, if Microsoft's doing this, Hey, you know, how, how about, you know, your schools and, and even in vocational ed, ed programs, I, there, sometimes there's a tendency to really gravitate to some of those paid certifications. Uh, you know, Adobe does those, Apple does those, uh, Microsoft does those, um, open source, you know, it is, Every bit as important. And I, I think you could even make a case, especially when it comes to server infrastructure, you know, even more important to introduce students to those tools than just the commercial uh, paid tools. They need to inter be introduced to both. But absolutely. Exciting to see. And as a reminder, Chrome OS built on top of open source. Uh, Mac OS is built on top of a, a an open source like Unix build. You know, it, it's something that that uh, uh, is very much a core of, of what runs the computer world. So and one other quick article, just because I think this is going to be kind of interesting. And I, I would like to get my hands on this at some point to see to compare. But Windows 10 X, which is we reported on this uh, 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 the middle of 2020 that Microsoft was working on yet another kind of evolved version of a scaled back Windows platform. Windows 10 S was the kind of last version of this that they had played with, which I had utilized, and it wasn't it wasn't bad. It, it, it was uh, I would say solid and seemed relatively fast. But Windows 10 X is the closest thing that Microsoft has come to really a a, a Chrome OS like experience uh and they are originally it was supposed to be part of this kind of two screen device that they were working on and they've abandoned that i, I think it was uh, uh six or eight months ago in part because there didn't seem to be much of a market for it and now they're looking at single screen devices and uh looking at ways they might be able to roll this out particularly to education enterprises in order to provide some of the management features of chrome os but then the familiarity of of uh, uh microsoft Windows. Um, the, of course, the big downfall of this is that it is a lot like Chrome OS in that you can only install, you know, certain things within the architecture of the platform. So in this case, it'd be the Microsoft Store and their universal apps that, that have been the new way of developing for Microsoft. Uh, that's probably good enough for a majority of users. But if you're expecting to install Photoshop or uh, other 32 or 64 bit applications, legacy applications that have kind of made Microsoft a, a champ of the enterprise for the last you know, 25 years, then you're going to be out of luck. However, the article does note uh, that while they're not shipping, you know, app desktop app support, uh, they have built quote, a container technology to run traditional desktop apps in a lightweight virtual machine. And this has been a whole model of thin client computing that has been around for a long time. And different people have heralded this as this is going to be the big deal, right? You're just going to have these more inexpensive clients that folks access. And then you have, you know, a server computer that's going to do the hard crunching and, and be able to run stuff. And that kind of technology is going to be important for Chrome and I, you know, for mobile devices, for, for a lot of things. So again, it's great to see Microsoft innovating. It's great to see competition here. We're not going to benefit as educators, teachers, students, um, families, <laughs> communities, you know, if there's only one dominant player. So 
I'm not going to be pushing our school to transition to this right away. I mean, we're very heavily invested in the, the iOS, the Mac OS, and the Google OS environments. And, of course, we do have Windows machines, uh, you know, running certain servers and business offices. And, you know, there's there's a handful that are running around out there. But, um, I, you know, I'm glad to see Microsoft continuing to try and innovate in this space. And as we've also talked about with respect to processors and computers, I mean, the capabilities of the web have just matured so much that it's not the case it's all you need. But for a lot of things that a lot of people do, a web browser with a fast connection and a good keyboard and, and, a, and a you know good good mouse or trackpad and, and, and good input devices, that is what you need. And so it's going to be interesting to see. And I don't know if our Microsoft store has reopened. Our Apple store had has gone on hiatus because of the pandemic. And I kind of think our Microsoft store might have followed suit. Uh, I just I honestly haven't set foot in the mall for like almost a year, so I don't know. But I we have had my Microsoft store as well as an Apple store here in Oklahoma City, and I've enjoyed seeing from time to time, you know what they what they have to offer, and um, you know, and we have bought a few machines through, through the years for our school. I'm not a hundred percent certain. I'm ninety nine percent certain, but I think App or Microsoft stores are done. I think oh, they decided good. to move move on from that model because they weren't getting the foot traffic. Wow. Well, and it was interesting to me talking with them, and they did some interesting stuff with like come in and Minecraft night. And yes. Get, you know, promotional stuff, but it was all their sales side, and it was or it was was it sales or marketing? I think it was marketing. Anyway, it was, it was, you know, it's just, it's all about that foot traffic and that idea that, you know, people are going to be able to put their hands on stuff and it's going to drive revenue. So the Apple store, I think because the repair side and I don't know, just iPhones and it's a different animal. So I'm, I'm pretty confident we're going to see that come back after the pandemic, but interesting that Microsoft may be finished. Okay, and then one other just interesting uh, piece of, of, of geekdom, um, based on CES this year, right? And we haven't talked much about CES. We should talk a little more about it because it, it does provide a lot of preview uh, to what's coming up in hardware this year. And, and actually, I kind of like that there was less hype this year, in part because while I love CES purely from the spectacle standpoint, and I do like to see where things are going, the uh, the companies are are... are, are incorrect more than they are correct at where things are going. And oftentimes a lot of the hardware at CES is at best vaporware that it, it's announced. There's maybe even a prototype or two, but it never really makes it to market in part because it doesn't get the interest they're looking for at CES. But there seems to be an interesting thing afoot when it comes to laptop screens and uh, the, the traditional um, 16 by nine screen, the widescreen that became popular around 2000, 2004, 2005 is starting to lose favor to the three by two screen. So what started off as 800 by 600 for early 2000s laptops today is much higher resolution, but HP, Dell, um, Samsung, a number of Chromebook manufacturers are all releasing products in 2021 with the three by two aspect ratio. And so it's back to the more um, uh, uh, almost squarish, not quite uh, a monitor as opposed to the more pronounced rectangular uh, a monitor of, of newer days. And so I guess it begs the question, I, I mean, I've used a couple three by two uh, laptops in the last couple of years. Uh, it wasn't a personal laptop. It's one I used for a couple of days as a trial. It was fine, but I didn't really get it. 
but I guess I was curious to hear your attitude, Wes, of moving back to the three by two, if that means anything to you, or you've been secretly pining for a three by two aspect ratio monitor. Where are you on that issue? Yeah, I, I was until seeing this article tonight was not aware that they were bringing that back. So it, it just seems, seems a little weird. Um, I will say, you know, screen mirroring technology in the display, which Windows has gotten better. Uh, back has always been pretty, pretty awesome with that is, is super important because multi-screen setups, whether we're talking about projectors in the classroom or, you know, desk setups uh, for remote learning is, is pretty important. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of used to, used to more of the 16 by nine layout. So I'm, yeah, not pining for a three by two. So <laughs> I yeah, give me a give me a fast processor and, and a large a large screen. Um, but I think it's even more important, you know, as far as just how not only how thin it is and how bright it is, how inexpensive is it, you know? And I wouldn't think that would necessarily impact cost in terms of changing aspect ratio. I think that's more a function of of just you know what what people are going to be comfortable with. I wouldn't, yeah, I don't know enough about the design for it, but it doesn't doesn't seem like it would have much of an impact on cost. Um, that's a weird, yeah, kind of a weird thing. It almost seems like they're going backwards, but whatever. I don't know that's going to make that big of a difference. Okay. Well, uh, where to next, sir? You know, we're going to jump into the tech correction, but you've carried this one forward, I think, and I don't know if you fully got to articulate your, your thoughts on it. David Peril, The Paradox of Abundance. Do you mind commenting on that one? Not at all. And in fact, I think this article is probably worth... Well, um, not every article we talk about on the show I think is worth reading. This one is in part because it articulates something that I've been trying to talk about for a long time at conference presentations, uh, when I teach pre-service teachers at the University of Montana on ed tech issues, when I talk to colleagues, when I think about planning technology. But um, uh, Dave Perel uh, 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 recently published an article on his website called The Paradox of Abundance, and he talks about how information abundance is dangerous and creates a very dangerous circumstance for us to go through. And he actually utilizes um, some of the metaphors that actually uh, uh, an early presentation that Wes heard of mine uh, about information traps uh, uh, is, is related to this. And I've always uh, thought it was really interesting that, you know, there, there's a lot of people that want to talk about the evolutionary history of human beings as it relates to nutrition. And, 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 and Mr. Perel actually discusses this as, as part of his context. But the problem we are, we run into sometimes is that we have so much access to food, particularly in, 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 in Western nations, uh, the United States, particularly a part of this, we have unbelievable amounts of really, 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 really cheap calories around us. And yet evolutionarily, our bodies tend to be uh, a seeking food whenever it's available because our bodies are, are conditioned, uh, uh, you know, going back thousands of years that we, we may not know where our next meal is, is at. Now, obviously, that's a very simplistic description of a very complex evolutionary process. But in a lot of ways, the information that we have available to us is creating somewhat of a, of a similar circumstance. And here we are in, 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 in 2021, and we have unbelievably large amounts of information 
ranging from raw information resources, including an unbelievable abundance of statistics and raw data from uh, uh, governmental and non-governmental sources, all the way over to highly processed news and opinion, everything from traditional channels like CNN and Fox News towards newer channels that are, 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 are literally conjuring up cable empires out of a uh, 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 pretty uh, uh, low attendance web streams five or 10 years ago. And we, we have everywhere to go uh, to, for information now. And it does create a lot of, of, of impact to this. And the reason why this article means so much to me is because I think that this is the crux of the reason why education needs to to be at the forefront of helping students understand the information revolution. Participating in it is part of it, and, and that's a critical part of this, but I've also become to believe that we need to stop pretending that the internet is a free classroom, and the internet is a, is a, is a library just waiting for students to attack, and that we don't need to be responsible for either helping our students understand information, or in some cases presenting correct information as truth or fact inside of a classroom and instead leaving this all to our students. Because unlike 20 years ago, where if you went to the internet, you might find some nefarious things and occasionally incorrect things, but there wasn't nearly the unbelievable archive of, of, of points of view, many of which are actively trying to, to, to engage in disinformation campaigns with you. Absolutely. We are living in the age of disinformation and media literacy is essential. And, and, you know, we're, we're using the SIFT media literacy framework, um, S for stop, I for, um, what is the I for? Um, gosh, I'm going to embarrass myself. We're using the SIFT media literacy framework, which Dr. Fryer has not memorized, uh, completely, uh, trace claims. Um, uh, we're going to, you're going to seek other, um, other perspectives. You're going to find, you know, other, other experts who are talking about that. Um, you know, it's, Anyway, these are the things that we're talking about right now in our media literacy class, and they are things that everybody needs. We're using Wikipedia in many cases to check out sources, right? Because if it's any kind of, any kind of, of information source, uh, that's been around, you know, much at all, it's probably going to have a Wikipedia page. And so, you know, teaching students how to use these, these tools, um, and it, man, and, and I'm just, we're working with fifth and sixth grade. It needs to, to go all the way across the curriculum, but couldn't agree more. And I think that, um, yeah, abundance is, is oftentimes the dream, but there's just, there's a new set of challenges that we're presented with in, in abundance. Um, just like you're talking about with health and food. Um, you know, there's, there are, there are new kinds of literacies. There are new kinds of skills, some of which harken back to critical thinking and stuff we've talked about since time immemorial, but some of which are are truly different. You know, the virality and velocity, the, the potential virality and the velocity of information sharing today uh, is, is just, un, you know, incredible. It, it's unprecedented. And that'll maybe kind of be a little bit of a segue into some of the, the topics we can discuss as far as the tech correction, because we have had and we do have today a global Internet. But. Some of that may be changing and some of the, the events that have literally transpired in the last couple of weeks, uh, even the last two weeks, you know, could, could have an impact on that. So is it all right if I take that as a segue to our tech correction? Please, let's do it. Okay, so 
we've got a lot of articles, probably like, you know, eight or so uh, underneath the, the category tech correction, social media. And the first one I want to point out is the best one that I read that has just some phenomenal links. This is from Columbia Journalism Review on January 14th. It's by Matthew Ingram. And uh, one of my geeks of the week this week is going to be a Twitter list that that Matthew's on. He is an incredible journalist. He was at GigaOM um, along with a bunch of other folks that, and I really love that publication. Um, and just spoiler, so I, I have a Twitter list of those folks. So even though they're not all GigaOM, I still read them together and you know and see what they share. So this article has just some excellent, excellent uh, quotes and and links on it. And one of the ones I want to draw your attention to is um, from a fellow I had I followed, and he's in, in um, Ingram cites him as an early Facebook staffer. He wrote at a, a paywall site that you can get free access to, but weirdly, my some some single sign-on sites now, when you log in with Google, are are only letting me use my security key, and it happens to be USB-C, and I don't, like this particular computer. Anyway, I don't have an adapter to get that in here. Weird. But you can read it for free. And he says some pretty provocative things like, you know, it was the right move for Facebook and Twitter to go ahead and and ban President Trump. But, quote, this moment may be remembered as a watershed moment in the history of free speech and the globally open Internet. It has the potential to be a tinderbox that underdoes the core of the Internet as we know it. And I went ahead and put a link to a blog post. Uh, so his article is called How Blocking Trump Puts the Future of the Internet at Risk, the Information. That was from January 12th. Uh, and I'll drop these into the uh, the live stream chat here in a second. But the quotes that he has on this blog post is that by striking down Trump, platforms risk the undoing of the global internet. One, creating intense pressure to censor private messaging. And he says, starting with email. And then he says, globally, countries will now have a legitimate argument that they need their own control. And I think I mentioned last week at the end of the show, and I'm sure this wasn't an article that tons of people were tracking, but Uganda, you know, was mad that because uh, the United States and other countries felt their elections were not fair and open and they had leaders that were, were blocked and banned that all of Facebook was just, you know, blocked and, and shut down in the entire country. Facebook is the internet in a number of countries in the world today. And as we'll talk about in, in, in some other articles, perhaps, I mean, there's people saying we should be treating these platforms like nations, not like companies. Uh, anyway, I thought this, the, the Michael Ingram, uh, Matthew uh, Ingram article is just really fantastic, especially for the quotations or the, the links and stuff like that that he includes. And I thought that one was particularly provocative looking at this as a watershed moment, not only in United States, you know, democracy surviving and a peaceful transition of power, which I think is one of the most important things as a, a lover of civics and our nation that we could possibly do for the world is to show that we don't um, need to and allow violence to, um, inter, you know, be, be a part of it was a part. Obviously, we had some, but we overcome that. We overcame that insurrection and we had a peaceful transition today. I think that's fantastic. But thinking about this as a watershed moment, um, 
you know, is that is the word harbinger? What is this a harbinger of more things to come? You know, more uh, leaders potentially who potentially being banned who violate the same community guidelines that the rest of us have to follow. But you know, sometimes people have been given free passes. But the pressure that that's going to put on governments potentially to change some of the fundamentals of the Internet, which has been the free and open exchange of ideas. Obviously, North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, there's places where things have been locked down. But perhaps we're going to see even more of that. Your thoughts, Dr. Neifer? Well, I mean, the free and open Internet, which has been the promise of the Internet since it was created in, in, in the 1970s and 80s, right? Like, it, we, we keep getting warning signs that the more you allow people to to modify and uh, scale back the free and open Internet, it becomes less viable as a, a, a democratizing force, right? And I think that's, that, that's the bottom line for me. And it really does connect a little bit uh, earlier when we were talking about the outgoing uh, chair of, of, of the FCC, because the bottom line is, is that he spent a serious amount of his time in office trying to allow providers to, to, uh, scale back our free access and to prioritize one thing over another. And I don't think it's a big leap to say that that's not that far away from a country deciding that it wants to have a shadow internet different than the, the primary internet, right? The point of the internet is that no matter where you are on earth, you're connected to the same network and that obviously we don't have access, all have access, you know, to super amazing, uh, fiber optic internet, uh, uh, in our homes. But if we can get a stable connection to the internet, once you're on the internet, the internet is the internet and you don't have to worry about your traffic, no matter what that traffic might be, being any better or worse than anyone else's traffic. And I think that's something something that we need to be cautious of and we very much need to uh, uh, be cautious about, uh, you know, how, how we're advocating for policies. And one of my thoughts about this is, and I, I did not get my course proposal written up over the break and I need to, I've got several things hanging over my head uh, school-wise that I just have to have, have to get done. Um, but I'm going to get this done as far as this proposal. It may not fly, but it's this uh, conspiracies and culture wars class to try and offer next year as a high school class. And one of the underlying ideas here is that we need to hopefully educate and, and motivate and galvanize youth to solve these problems, right? Because these are big, big issues that touch on, you know, governance, the sharing of information, facts, you know, because when, if we have different facts, we really have trouble doing anything else, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, government and, but even in just life. I mean, if, if, if you see, you see red and I see blue or green or whatever, it is, uh, it's a crazy world. And, and there, these issues are going to play out, um, over over years, this isn't going to be something that will be resolved, you know, in, in the first you know 90 days of a Biden administration or whatever. Um, there's a lot of things that are unwrapping. Um, this does have to do with with countries and competition. But, you know, we are all trying to figure out how do we have the free and open exchange of ideas? How do we have you know, make, have business online? How do we have democracy, of course, coexisting with very authoritarian, um, you know, models of, of government? I think both Iran and Russia are embarking in a, and have some kind of their own internet, you know, 
Um, there's, you know, still VPNs and ways that people are getting access beyond that. But uh, I just think that's a, I don't know how many people see that, but I think over the, the last, you know, couple years doing the reading and, and watching videos and listening to podcasts and all the different ways we, you know, consume information and, and take things in reading. Hey, I even still read. Um, it's in, it's really eye opening to see how challenging these problems are, how there's really, really super smart people working on it who haven't been able to figure out what to do. And this is one of the, the big grand challenges of our time is how are we going to hopefully continue uh, even more robust and authentic representative democracy? How are we going to support human rights? How are we going to support, you know, human values um, that, that I would argue are universal in the face of these technologies, which give, you know, fringe groups the opportunity to weaponize and, and hijack mainstream media, you know, organize what could amount to, you know, violent protests and even overthrows of governments, um, throwing elections, um, and, uh, you know, obviously promoting a lot of criminal activity and all kinds of stuff. And it's, these are things we gotta, we gotta figure out. So I think that we're, we're, we've witnessed history today. We've witnessed history you know, this month and in some way, shape or form, you know, we need kids and I'm, I'm, I'm not just going to pass the buck. I mean, if our generation can figure it out, great, but I think it's going to be a long-term thing. We need to figure this out and we need just really, really smart geeks and folks who are passionate about not just computers and technology, but ethics and like representative government, like constitution, the values which undergird our society and the universal declaration of human rights, all that, you know, we need folks to be applying, bringing their best to those challenges and and not just seeing, hey, we told you about the three branches of government and how well we have it all figured out in the United States. No, we don't. I mean, we have a fantastic system, but it's supposed to be flexible to be able to change and adapt. And that's what we need to work on having it do. And so there's my rant backslash done. <laughs> <laughs> Although there are a few more articles there. So do you want to pick up another one? You, you put a, uh, several in here as well. So yeah, there, there's one I, I, I wanted to note and, and it, part of it just kind of expresses the challenge. It's a really great article today from recode via Vox and the, um, uh, you know, obviously a lot's changed in the last two weeks from the standpoint of once Twitter decided that it was within their purview and, and not a violation of their internal policies to ban, uh, now former President Trump from that platform, it, 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 you know, obviously that was a big moment in regards to this, this tech correction that we keep talking about on the show. And whether you agree or disagree with that, in fact, I know people on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, that, that disagree with that decision. And so I think it's a little more complex than just saying it, it's, it's a political debate, right? But Recode went ahead and, and, and took a look at places where they could find prominent information um, regarding um, uh, 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 various false claims uh, that, that have been thoroughly disproven um, in, in, in the mainstream media, but didn't have to look that far to find, you know, confirming uh, uh, falsified, trumped up evidence uh, of, of, of X, Y, and Z. And um, I, I think it highlights the, the, the process of, 
that we're going to have to go through to be able to, well, in other words, we can't, we can't stuff this back in, in, into Pandora's box, right? It is going to be an extraordinary situation, uh, for us to be able to, to, uh, you know, undo the mass power of universal platforms. And so, um, you know, it, it really does, uh, uh, echo what we've been talking about for a long time that we don't know the answers to this either because it's really complex. But the bottom line is a lot has happened in, 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 in two weeks. And yet there's, there's, there's no possibility at this point that, that, uh, we're able to shut down disinformation. We have to do something way more nuanced than that. And I would argue that's education. Yeah. Media literacy and education has a huge role to play. Um, but I think the, the laws which are enabling it, we're going to see a lot of discussion about, uh, section 230, um, and and we've been talking about that on the show as well. Let me share a couple articles that I that I put in here that just may blow your mind freaking wide open. So ProPublica on January 17th published an article and shout out to my friend Miguel Gulen, I think, who actually shared this link with me. The title is What Parler Saw During the Attack on the Capitol. This incredible timeline of video is the result of 31 different contributors and I think four different ProPublica journalists. And what you can do is take a look at color-coded videos from around D.C. near the Capitol and then inside the Capitol, and you can go through this incredible timeline. And there is a warning at the very top of this that, you know, hey, this contains videos that viewers may find disturbing. So you need to consider the developmental level and age of your kids and your context, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to talk about this at school and, and full disclosure, I have not seen a tiny fraction of all this because this is a ton of content, but related to this, how, how did all this come to be? Um, there's an Ars Technica article from January 12th, parlors, am- amateur coding could come back to haunt Capitol Hill rioters. As we've talked about, um, Parler was not only removed from the um, the app stores of Google and and Apple, um, it also was was completely taken offline when Amazon, that provides the hosting for Parler, uh, said you're done. And so before that happened, there was this window of time, and journalists, being the savvy folks that they are. Um, and, and also citizen journalists, you know, knew that the content that had been put up there was going to be very important, not only to law enforcement in terms of identifying the people that were there that might need to be arrested later, uh, which is happening, but also just from a historical standpoint. And so this article, um, actually be a very interesting one to look at from a computer science standpoint, talks about how poor the coding was that made it so easy to scrape something like 80 terabits of data, lots and lots of video from the site. And so um, there's a, a hacker that goes by the hang, the handle donk underscore MB. Uh, and it says that she had set out to archive content in hopes of preserving self-incriminating material. Um, and then by Sunday following January 6th, the Wednesday insurrection, she, she had collected roughly 80 terabytes of posts, including more than a million videos, which contain GPS metadata. So, the article goes on to explain Facebook, Twitter, um, other social media sites, not Parler, will 
strip off some of that identifying metadata that when you use a cell phone, typically, unless you've, you know, got it set up specially so that it doesn't, it has the exact GPS coordinates of where you took that picture and that photo. And that information, you know, can be very important for law enforcement. It can also, you know, depending on the context, be you put yourself in jeopardy from a privacy standpoint or whatever, but all that data is there. And basically, I think we mentioned on the show that they were using some kind of free trial of an SSO with like Microsoft 55 and Google or something. I mean, they were not hiring the best and the brightest to code their site. And so this article is saying that's basically coming back to bite those uh, who, you know, stormed the Capitol or part of the insurrection there. But it also is providing this incredible historical archive, um, probably a lesson there in terms of digital citizenship and digital footprint, right? Because sometimes students, and this could be of older folks as well, have an idea about the ephemeral nature of of some of these things that are just going to be like a wisp in the wind and they're going to go away. Well, it all depends on who's archived that and who saved that. And of course, you know, ISPs and servers and things like that. There's, there's a lot of things that are, are backed up. And then the last one I'll mention here is, um, basically a really good article of videos about conspiracy theory. As I said, I'm continuing. This is our second trimester. So this is my second round to do this, this, um, mainly focused on the moon moon landings and the idea that, hey, we really went to the moon. It's It wasn't a hoax. Uh, but looking at conspiracy theory and the playbook of conspiracy theory, how do you f- identify what we're calling a Fruit Loop conspiracy theory, which is like, you know, Elvis is still alive. There's there's stuff that could be heated debate uh, when it comes to political stuff. Um, there's a lot of ways we can talk about this. The article uh, includes some really good videos about why why are conspiracy theories so appealing? Uh, what kind of psychology drives that? Uh, why are they sometimes rational to believe? Why can it be really hard to argue with conspiracy theorists? And it includes Bill Nye's uh, video about the moon landing vaccines. And then there are 10 really specific recommendations that it has for talking with folks who are really buying into conspiracy theories. And these are people in our families. They could go to our church. They may be in the PTA. We might see them on a walk or I don't know. We're not interacting with people face to face as much, but like these people are all around. Uh, the number of folks that still, even after the insurrection in the Capitol supported Donald Trump, you know, it was like over 30% according to some surveys, which seems just pretty hard to believe. But there is a, there's really a, you know, some of the stuff that I read about the, the insurrection and the folks that were there and the things that they believe it describes an America. I don't recognize because I haven't been living in that reality. And so anyway, this article I thought not only had some good videos that I'm going to add to the Conspiracies and Culture Wars Media Literacy Project page and resource page, um, I think it also has some practical stuff for us to keep in mind as we interact with with people. And, um, you know, and, and one of them is to just be really careful. Um, consider biting your tongue, picking your battles carefully. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly, you know, the idea of, of going private, using direct messages, being careful if you're going to try to confront somebody because that can be ugly. And I think I shared, you know, probably back in May after we were we picked up our son when the pandemic video came out. You know, if I could go back in time, I'd change some of my own choices when I, you know, interacted with some people I know around some of those issues. So I found that to be a practical article. 
Well, and I, I just, I, I, it's funny about the, uh, the metadata on photographs posted to Parler because I actually wondered that a couple of months ago that, uh, I was, uh, Clicking through Reddit, which is is a place I like to 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 burn some uh, mental energy, uh, lots of interesting tech stuff on Reddit, and someone had posted um, a photograph of uh, their setup, and I wondered exactly that. Wes was that that you know when you post something to Reddit, does it post that? I I keep my metadata on my photographs. Uh, I don't use them that often, to be honest, uh, uh, outside of my personal use or on like a social media site like Facebook. And so I wondered if that was the case. And as it turns out, um, uh, uh, I learned by downloading some photographs and, and sniffing through the metadata that it strips that. It's just a natural part of, of safety um, on social media platforms. So it is very interesting to me that that was one of the um, the errors made by the developers uh, at Parler. And by the way, uh, Parler is up-ish. Um, they, the, the headline yesterday was that they had uh, accessed a... Um, a Russian hosting firm that agreed to, to host them, a big cloud-based firm. But um, uh, it's interesting that they're not actually uh, uh, available to log in. What you can do is go to their website, and they have four or five of the more prominent users that have uh, some quotations up about you know, continuing the fight for free speech. And so uh, that continues to be an interesting um, uh, uh, developing story. In your comment about about uh, GPS coordinates and all that uh, reminded me at one time, actually, when I went up to Montana, I think this was when my dad and I were up there and we got to see old Willie Nelson. Remember that? I do. The opening band was a little better than Willie was, but it was still good to see Willie. Um, I think I had actually on Flickr temporarily turned on the show my map coordinates because I wanted to create like, well, look at the pictures I took of going to the Sun Road. Which, by the way, is that closed? Someone told me they thought that that had been shut down. You know, well, well, it shut down this time of year. uh, It shut down this time of year because of snow. No, no, I know it does, but I mean, it's not like permanently closed. No, 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 no. There, there, you would hear, you would hear faint cries from Montana. Well, and we're gonna have to talk because we're we're discussing possibilities of a of perhaps a little journey up your way, maybe in the summer. But uh, anyway, I just went back to check because I was like. Yeah, I haven't looked at that recently. And, you know, I I still use Flickr, still post things. But no, my photos are not sharing GPS coordinates. I mean, I'm loving to share food stuff, but I don't really want to tell everybody exactly where we live. And that that right there is a geeky technical kind of thing, but it directly impacts privacy and it directly impacts everyone literally who has has a smartphone, because I think pretty much everyone who has a phone takes a picture at some time uh, and probably shares it in some way with other people. So. Good stuff, and you know we're going to continue to to watch this and monitor this. But uh, some really phenomenal journalism uh, that has happened already since January the sixth. And like I said, I don't, I don't know, I don't have these, and I'm not necessarily going to put these in the the chat. But I um, through through Radio Lab heard that post reports, and uh, you know just just incredible journalism. So hopefully, one of the things that's going to come out of this is we're going to continue to find ways to support quality journalism. Uh, whether we're making public investments, thinking, you know, BBC, uh, NPR, you know, kinds of things, or, you know, as, as you mentioned frequently, Jason, about the, the little, you know, Patreon and subscription things and, and ways that you support journalism. Um, that stuff is important. And, uh, the, the events of the last week have shown us a lot of things, but one of them is, you know, 
how how important uh, journalism is and reporting and and also that we've got smart geeks that are are working to try to uh, document things and um, you know not only protect people in in the moment but also um, you know archive things for posterity for us to to learn from. Um, there's a there's a whole lot of lessons to be learned and obviously. This is an evolving story, which is being told, you know, continuing to be told today. We've got a lot of work to do. And, and social media has played a huge role. Technology has played a huge role in getting us to where we, we are today. Um, January 6th is not the end of extremist attempts at violence and actual violence in the United States, I'm afraid. So we've got some work to do. And the role that the technology plays in here is is going to be addressed. We don't know how that will be addressed, but that's going to be some of the things that I'm sure we'll be talking about in the in the weeks and months ahead. And it'll be interesting to see what these things, what happens to these things framed in a Biden administration, um, because, hey, we have a new president in our country. And I'm thrilled that we had a peaceful transition of power today. So, yay, representative democracy. Yay, peaceful transitions of power. Well, Wes, uh, we are now past the top of the hour, so we should move into our Geeks of the Week. What do you have to share with us? Okay, uh, well, I was uh, I have three quick ones. So Google has a new uh, conference coming up February 17th and 18th. It's called Learning with Google, uh, free to register. And I don't know how much of that I will be able to attend live, um, but a lot of times there's some really good information and strategies that comes out of that. Um, I already previewed this one for you. Uh, this is my GigaOM Twitter list. So if you just go to put in twitter.com slash wfryer uh, and you do slash lists, I have a bunch of lists. But like this is the one of the main ways I use Twitter to process news. And boy, was it ever helpful in the last couple weeks because rather than just go to my stream, which of course is still filtered, but it's rated or it's... um. It's weighted, you know, according to the algorithm of Twitter. I really like to see a list that just shows me a live feed of what these people are sharing. And so that list uh, has 18 folks and they all used to work for GigaOM. And I not only like to look at that in Twitter, I use Flipboard as well uh, to look at that list. And if that's something that you haven't done before, that is a, a great thing. And my last thing is just a shout out to the Biden inaugural committee, because I thought they really used Twitter specifically and social media well, because you could reach, you could like a post and then that subscribed you. And then I got tweets, you know, throughout the day today about, you know, the inauguration video and about some other things going live. And if I wanted to unsubscribe, kind of like a text message, I could just reply, stop, you know, hashtag stop. That's really cool. I thought that was well done. And it'll be interesting to see if there's other kinds of live events that'll do that same sort of thing, leveraging the existing platform of Twitter and enabling people to to get links and connect in real time. Like that, that'd be kind of cool for a conference to do, right? And I haven't ever seen anyone do it quite as well as the Biden inauguration team did today. Yep, absolutely. How about you? Do you have any Geeks of the Week for it? Well, um, you know, I, I've talked about uh, my passion is probably a strong word, but I do like this notion of 
taking retro technology and continuing to make it useful again. Uh, this is my Pebble watch that I'm using right now. Um, I've refurbished a couple of uh, vintage iPods that I use actively because it's pretty cool technology. And I know for a, a brief amount of time, the Zune, the Microsoft Zune, was a, a big deal, and a lot of audiophiles really liked the Zune interface and felt it was superior to, to the iPod. So not only are there people that are taking vintage uh, uh, hardware and making it useful and newish again, the Zune people uh, will have their day in the sun. So great article from The Verge today. I laughed out loud during reading it because it, it's familiar to the Pebble Alliance um which is the folks that keep um, uh, the pebble going and then the, the very, 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 very nerdy Mac community that keeps old uh, uh, hard drive based iPods going. But I thought I would share that there is also a Zune community as well. Very good. Well, I think we got to wrap up. I think we do. Wes, where can people find you on the internet? I am sharing food recipes on food.westfryer.com, uh, but I'm also sharing on Twitter at WFryer, and I'll probably post to my blog again in a while, uh, but that's at speedofcreativity.org. How about you, Dr. Knife? I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, and hey, registration open today for NCC 2021, www.ncce.org. Um, a great pricing to start off with. Uh, it is uh, practically a, a, a bag of M&Ms at the counter uh, for you to pick up and enjoy what I think is one of the, the, the best conferences in the United States. You can see me speak. You can see uh, a, a number of wonderful speakers and Go virtual this year. Next year, come visit us in Seattle. Again, www.ncc.org. But hey, this isn't self-promotion. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast where we join um, the crowds of live fans on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. No, it's my time. 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Uh, Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. Hey, we'd love it if you could join us live, but if you can't, you can always download our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can go to our YouTube channel. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Or you can go download little tiny MP3 files at our website, EdTechSR.com. In any case, we hope to see you next time in the Tech Situation Room. We hope you have a great night. Stay safe. Stay savvy.